leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders, and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, I'm Emily Svatlanak, and today myself and my colleague Laura Eyre are speaking to Kirsten Patterson, the Chief Executive of the Institute of Directors. KP is a qualified lawyer and a distinguished fellow of the Human Resources Institute of New Zealand, co-deputy chair of the Global Network of Directors Institutes, chair of the Brian Picot Ethical Leadership Advisory Board and was previously chair of the Wellington Homeless Women's Trust. With extensive governance and leadership experience, she is actively involved in community initiatives. A strong advocate of diversity, KP was also a founding member of Global Women's Champions for Change, a group of senior executives and directors who commit to diversity in the workplace, and a founding member of WISPA, an organisation promoting women in sport, and mentors a number of business leaders. She's also on the board for Voices for Hope, an organisation aimed at breaking the stigma around mental illness. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today. Both Emily and I are naturally very excited to speak to you, obviously being in the communications profession, issues and crises management is something very close to our heart and we love helping people through dealing with certain issues where perhaps they've become a bit stuck or they don't really know what the next uh, best step to take is. So with your role at the IOD, can you just tell us a little bit about that and a bit about your career journey? Yeah, sure. Kia ora, everyone. It's really great to be here um, and to be able to reflect on some of the issues that have uh, that we've all been facing over the last 18 months or so. Uh, so it's great to sort of uh, have a chat about that. Uh, so um, KP is what everyone calls me. It's uh, kind of, uh, if you try and Google Kirsten Patterson, most people won't know who that is. It's uh, KP's a hangover from my almost 10 years working at the New Zealand Rugby Union. It's a nickname that's stuck. Very Kiwi thing, isn't it, to sort of be have a nickname uh, and have that stick with you. But I always introduce myself in that way because otherwise people sort of go, it's a bit strange calling someone by their nickname when you've only just met them. But uh, So it's KP. And uh, yeah, a little bit about my journey. So my role at uh, Institute of Directors, as Chief Executive, is we're there to help support um, great governance in New Zealand. So governance happens right through from you know, NZX listed in Deloitte Top 200 through to not-for-profit, school boards, trustees, charities. Uh, and it's often the hidden work behind the scenes, although Boards are sort of sometimes seen as being sexy and out the front. Actually, good governance is behind the scenes, giving you those foundations and putting those things in place to make sure that the sort of business and our communities are operating really well. Uh, and that's a great thing that I love about my time at the IOD. And yeah, I've um, ended up there about four years now. And before that, I've spent most of my time working in membership bodies and not-for-profits. So that's where I'm sort of passionate about the work that they're doing. And uh, IOD allows me to bring all that together. Wonderful. And um, just touching on what you just said in terms of that focus on governance, um, in terms of directorships and the work that the IOD is doing, what are some of the trends that you've been seeing in New Zealand and the world, really? Yeah, um, and I can reflect on that both in terms of my New Zealand experience that we hear from New Zealand directors, but also through the Global Network of Directors Institute. So I'm the, um, one of the co-deputy chairs for the Global Network. It's called the GNDI. Uh, and that's the community of institutes of directors like ourselves all over the world. 
Uh, so we're able to do surveys and share information amongst um, countries globally. So I can give you some insights in terms of that. Probably two areas in terms of governance trends. One is for the directors themselves and the other is in terms of trends for governance. And uh, they're, quite, they're pull, pulling directors in two different directions. So one of the key trends we've seen over the last um, 18 months in particular is the increase in workload for directors. We've probably all felt that at a management level as well, but for directors, their workload has increased exponentially. Uh, and that doesn't come with increases in remuneration, so uh, their hours have not kept up with pay. You, and, you know, you're not going to become rich becoming a director. I think that's a perception, but actually most people are doing it for the purpose and for giving back uh, rather than for the, for the reward. And that leads into one of the other trends, which is around liability. So if we have a bad day at the office, you and I, we might lose our job, we you know, get fired, um, but recoverable hopefully, and we can move on. Uh, but for directors, they have a bad day at the office. They miss that one little sentence that was deemed to be important, you know, five years down the track when someone looks at it. They can not only lose their job as a director, but they lose their personal reputation, uh, but they can lose their house and they can also go to jail. Uh, so one of the big trends we've seen in governance in the last couple of years is a huge increase in personal liability, which is impacting on uh, insurance obligations, insurance costs. Some companies are struggling to get DNO cover. Some of the costs have increased fivefold for some companies. Uh, so that's an indication that it's a much riskier place to be a director. And then we head into the governance trends themselves. What are the things that have actually shifted? And the really big shift for directors is their role in having to make decisions and guide us through times of uncertainty. It used to be probably 20 years ago that you went onto a board to impart your wisdom that you'd developed over the last 20 years and they were known problems. Whereas now we're dealing with issues like global pandemics. We're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with social inequality. We're seeing changes in the expectation of our society in terms of what our social license to operate is. Who knows the answers to those questions? That's not something you learn at university. It's not something you have management experience about. So that's a huge shift as directors are having to operate and think in really different ways. It's a constant source of learning, isn't it? And I think, as you said, a lot of people do get into a directorship role because they're passionate about the industry and they want to give back in some way. But with the increase in liabilities that they do face, what can they do to protect themselves or prepare for increases in that nature? Yeah, it's really important that people do good due diligence about the organisations that they're going to be supporting. Um, so absolutely fundamental. Do the basics in terms of the financials. Um, that's critically important. Uh, so that's kind of the, the big thing. Our president, Alan, Isaac, um, who's president of the Institute of Directors, he's got a couple of great things he says about his due diligence, which I love. I need to like and respect the chair and I need to like and respect the CEO. So those relationships um, are incredibly important, um, as well as doing that fundamental kind of financial assessments about due diligence. Now, most of us start our governance careers in not-for-profit. So when you do your financial due diligence over a, a not-for-profit, it can be a bit scary because most of them are living hand-to-mouth. Right? One of the big jobs and not-for-profit is fundraising. Uh, but, you know, you need to know how are they positioned? How can I contribute? And the big thing to ask yourself is what can I bring to this board? Why me and why this company? 
because it's not just a case of oh, any board will do or I just want to get on a board because it's going to build my CV. What difference can you make for that company um, or that organisation, that not-for-profit that you're going to be assisting? Um, and that'll, that'll keep you in the right space, I think. Mm, that's quite a quite a lot that is on one person to sort of manage and deal with and obviously the last 18 months have been quite significant in terms of that uncertainty. Um, how how has that changed the Institute of Directors approach to um, directors within your network? It, have you done anything different to support them? Yeah, we've changed a lot over the last 18 months. I think everyone has. I mean, we've all seen that meme of who was responsible for your digital transformation. You know, was it your CEO? Was it your CIO? Or was it COVID? Uh, And the reality is for most of us, it was COVID. You know, we got more done in our digital development uh, at the IOD in three months than we'd done in what felt like three years before. And the thing that was really interesting from a crisis management perspective for us is we actually didn't have to change many of our delegations. So we had those permissions in place already and we had the right people in place already. We maybe just hadn't activated them in the right way. So I think there's some silver linings from some of these things, some lessons that we can take uh, and, you know, a good indication of maybe some of our crisis management plans in advance working. But we've um, we've come out a bit of a hybrid, I think, actually. We've really had to adapt to be much more online, much more digital. And that was one of the urban myths that we told ourselves. We had all these sort of stories that we told as an organisation that, you know, directors aren't digital, directors aren't online, they won't want to come to online events or also that speakers won't want to share their stories online uh, because of the Chatham House rule and all of those sorts of things. And actually COVID gave us all a permission to try some new things uh, and we found out that some of those stories we told ourselves weren't true anymore. Uh, So we've come out of it different, bruised in some places. We're smaller than we were when we went into COVID. Um, So in terms of the financial pressure on that. But what we have seen is huge demand um, uh, coming off the back of recovery of organisations understanding how important governance is, the difference it can make, um, and seeking help to to upskill and get support there, which is great. Wonderful. And it always comes back to communication, doesn't it? You know, governance lends itself to that. And I suppose if a company is stepping outside of that and they've started to have some reputational issues, what can they do to really protect themselves in that space? And what does the IOD help to equip people with if they're dealing with a communicational reputational issue? It's really critical that boards do the work and the thinking about that in advance. Uh, so, you know, with everything's moving so fast with crisis management and we were saying, you know, we used to have 24 hours to respond to a media issue and now we've got 24 seconds um, and in fact not even that long, it's already spread. So it's really critical boards do that work in advance and we saw the boards that had done that really well during their crisis events or during COVID because you don't have time to gather your board together and be thinking about how do we respond to a communications issue today? How do we respond to, you know, what should management do now? What delegations do we need to have in place? So boards understanding that. I think we've seen a huge shift in that in recent years of 
um, as societal pressure has increased, our expectations on our boards and therefore the companies that they're leading is that they will have good brand and reputation. We know that it informs how loyal people are to companies. We know that good brand and communication indicates you know, how well they will forgive a company if they make mistakes. So that sort of work is critically important. Um, and uh, we've been sharing a lot of kind of case studies and war stories with our members about where things have been tough and where things have been difficult uh, so that they can get the lessons from those. Now, in the New Zealand context, getting people to share war stories can be really tough because we're such a small village and sharing things when it's sometimes hard um, in such a small community can be difficult. But that's where we try and bring in Australian examples or UK or America examples where we can so that people can see, okay, I can see that board was under pressure. How did they recover from that? What plans did they have in place and how how did they work their way through that? Because reputation for your company, reputation for yourself as director, uh, directors is, is so critically important. It's our fundamental currency these days. Hmm. Are there, and appreciate that the two degrees of separation in New Zealand are a blessing and a curse in this, um, but are there any examples of the case studies that you did share that you could share with us as well today on an organisation that did particularly well and where things went horribly wrong in that instance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples that are outside New Zealand just um, because I think they're great ones. Um, first is the 7-Eleven story in Australia. So for people who don't know, 7-Elevens are um, franchise stores, kind of like you, you know, kind of corner dairy. You can you know go and buy everything that you'd need there, um, but they're franchises. Uh, but the parent company of 7-Eleven had good franchise agreements and all those things in place, but it turned out that actually they had modern slavery in their 7-Eleven stores. So we don't think about slavery as being an issue for today, but they had people in those stores who weren't being paid for work or who weren't getting their minimum employment conditions being met. And that's slavery. Uh, so they had a, a massive reputational issue um, that was very, very high profile news all over the Australian media. And the parent company had to lead them through that. So they could have taken a position that actually they're independent franchisees. That's actually not our responsibility, the individual companies, and they're not doing what we told them to do. But they took it from a brand and reputation perspective and said actually anything that impacts on our brand is our responsibility um, and the well-being of our employees um, is incredibly important to us and also our consumers expect more. Um, so their chair um, did a wonderful job of leading that organisation through um, restitution some um, public responsibility um, and they, they uh, made payments to all of those people who hadn't been paid. And they engaged with particularly the migrant communities who were most impacted through working in those stores as to how they could make sure that these things never happened again. Uh, and that involved them getting out onto the floors. They were out, you know, visiting 7-Elevens at one o'clock in the morning, not just when people think board members are going to be there. Uh, is that old saying that the Queen thinks every bathroom smells like fresh paint? Uh, and that's also true for boards uh, because people kind of know when they're coming. So they tidy up and make things sort of fresh and, fresh and tidy. Um, and they got around all of that and said, actually, we need to know what it's like to experience working for 7-Eleven. Um, and they actually visited those communities, they got involved with those leaders um, and asked questions and listened and took responsibility. Um, and they've come out of that stronger 
and their brand positioning has increased. Now, you would think on any sort of example of that, um, that would have been something that would have punished them bitterly, and it did for a long period of time, but because they lent into it, owned it, took responsibility for it, and their board did not shy away from the challenges that they had, um, they came through that pretty strongly. That's wonderful to hear because you do really need to take ownership of an issue in this regard and I think that that does really help to build a lot of goodwill with your community and your customers and ultimately other stakeholders in your business so you can't shy away from these things. Do you have an example of where you've witnessed an issue and it perhaps hasn't been handled so gracefully such as this example? Yeah, I mean, an example that I think they did a really great job at trying to manage their way through, but they, it was a difficult one to handle, was American Apparel in the, in the US. Now, um, this is one that if you're going to Google it, you don't Google it from your work computer because it's definitely not safe for work. Uh, they had a particular CEO um, and uh, he had a, a, a particular style and they had to put in some rules around things like you'll wear pants at work. Um, so that's a rule that, um, that they had to put in place things such as uh, that he's said publicly that uh, having inappropriate relationships with young female staff members was an occupational hazard. Uh, so that kind of gives you a bit of an indication about the issues that they were facing. Um, and their board was split over that. We were really lucky to have the uh, one of their board members come and share that story with us here in New Zealand. Very, very high profile case that um, uh, is all over Google in terms of how that um, board, but that unfortunately that board was split, um, and you know so they they weren't in a position to be able to perhaps take uh, the leadership in the same way as quickly as they should have, uh, and the, that's one I think that's done a lot of damage to that organisation, um, and not every organisation comes through um, successfully, and a lot of organisations end up breaking up and not being in quite the same place as they were. Mm, that's that's really interesting, and that. I think goes back to what you were saying earlier with how important it is to have that relationship where you respect and like your chair and your CEO and it, it must be incredibly tough. How, how would you suggest just for argument's sake if there is a director on a board um, and they don't agree with the direction that the company is going, um, how would you suggest they go about that internal and possibly external conflict that they might be facing? Yeah, sure. I mean, dissent is okay. You know, that something that in New Zealand we're actually a little bit uncomfortable with sometimes is having difficult conversations with each other. Again, again, two degrees of separation. All of your strengths, if you overuse them, can become a weakness and our connectedness can sometimes stop us from having those really difficult conversations when things are a bit tricky. Um, so some dissent's okay. Now, if it's a point of values, that's a different position for both you and the board. So if you have a values disconnect with the organisation in terms of its purpose or its approach, then you've really got to consider, can I change it? Can I be the person actually, am I put here for a reason? Am I here to help change this organisation's view? Um, and are you up for that? Because that's going to take a lot of resilience to do that. Um, but you may need to walk away. And that's, again, also really difficult to do. For that, Often we don't put our hands up and go, you know what, 
that something's not right here and I do need to walk away from this. Uh, but the relationship with the chair is critically important. That's the way um, that you can encourage you know, better board conversations to occur. Maybe there's board reviews that you can have an opportunity to provide feedback on your peers or feedback on board performance, bringing facilitators in. Um, and, you know, we've seen examples play out with where boards are conflicted uh, and, you know, the tone starts at the top. How can an organisation not be conflicted if you don't have mum and dad fighting? You know, it's no different. You need to have a connected front um, on that. But that doesn't mean that you agree on every issue all of the time. Um, that's why we have a board. You know, some people often ask me, why do we have boards? And, you know, they're just there to have lunch or, you know, what are they there for? Um, boards are there because of diversity. That's exactly what they're there for. You know, the expectation that we can have one CEO who is the expert in every topic that we would ever need and have every perspective in their head, of course they can't. We would never expect that of one individual. So that's what the board's there to do. And sometimes you need a dissenting voice. As long as it's collegial, that's important. Yeah. I guess one way we've found as well that really helps to foster unity at a board level is especially when dealing with issues and getting in in front of them is to develop a bit of a communications matrix and an issue matrix. Is this something that you have seen a lot of in your time at the IOD? Is this something that you can see is rolling out through a board level? Yeah, we'd love to see more of it, actually. Um, but absolutely we are. You know, um, it's really critically important that boards put the work in before it's needed. And I know, you know, I can't sort of emphasise that enough because you're not going to have the time to do it afterwards. Uh, so, you know, those those communication protocols set the guardrails because that's what management needs. Management needs the board to sort of set how far left can I go, how far right can I go and what speed am I headed at? So that they've got those sort of guardrails and safety rails in place to sort of understand what the risk appetite is for the organisation. Who's going to say what? And being clear, because in a crisis that impacts the whole organisation, it can be really unclear for some organisations as to whether, is the chair speaking on this? Is this a board issue or is this a CEO issue? Um, so being really clear about that so that, you know, there's no confusion internally. Uh, and sometimes it might be that the chair speaks and that's okay um, because the CEO might be getting on and dealing with a crisis. Uh, so being really clear with who's speaking um, and what issues you'll speak out on and what you won't. And I think that's a harder issue for boards today because it used to be we only commented on our own stuff. Whereas now our consumers are actually expecting us to have a voice and to have a view on a wider range of issues. So that does require you to spend some time thinking about it. For example, the Qantas board would have had some conversations as to are they going to speak out on the gay marriage plebiscite in Australia because their CEO spoke out on that issue. That was a governance issue. And they formed a very firm view that it was important for them to speak out because it was important for their CEO from a values perspective. It was important for their organisation from their staff. And it was important to their consumers. Um, whereas, again, 20 years ago, that's unlikely to have been something that we would have seen a corporate taker public position on. And if we look to uh, America in particular, a bad and a good example on a number of fronts, uh, social injustice issues there critically important as now governance issues. So boards have got to spend some time getting to know 
actually what are our values, what's our purpose, where do we sit on social inequality issues, on Black Lives Matters, on um, issues in terms of gay marriage, for example, um, and being clear about what they'll speak out on, uh, what's important to them and what their consumers expect from them. Really doing that hard work to prepare for any circumstance. What are some resources that you think are extremely valuable in terms of preparing um, for that reputational piece, for that taking a stance? Yeah, we've got some resources on our website, plug, plug for the IOD, um, in terms of board's role in a crisis um, and some uh, um, assistance there. Um, And we do some training in terms of um, some strategy essentials and risk essentials and and those things. But these are ones where you really need to get specialist support in. Uh, Because they're the tricky ones, right? So again, we hope that we have a really nice, well-balanced board. But remember, the board aren't the experts in doing the work. They're the experts in asking the questions and knowing what good looks like. So a good board member will be able to ask those questions and test management or say, have you thought of and perhaps this and maybe that, and to know what stuff coming back should look like or challenge or see those gaps. This is one where you need to find some really great partners um, and spend that time thinking about those things in advance um, and have those sort of people you can call on uh, because it will be a case of, uh, you know, when and not if. It's like cyber security. We had our own really high profile cyber um, crisis ourselves only sort of a, just over a, a year or two ago um, where somebody, a, a very well-known hacker, thought that we were part of the New Zealand government because of our name. And we, you know, got taken down and passed it all over the front page of the paper um, because they um, they got confused and just sort of took our website down. And it was a really high-profile crisis issue. We had to call on expert advice to do that, but luckily we had some good systems in place and, and great directors around to support us. Fantastic. And I guess having those systems in place is so, so vital when faced with an issue that is just out of the blue and completely unexpected. And the IOD does such a wonderful job of developing these resources and hosting networking events and sharing information that is really valuable that other directors can learn from. Is there something, I guess, on a person's journey before they become a director, is there a gap? Is there something that's missing in their education? Should this be covered in tertiary level education, dealing with a crisis at the very top? Yeah, I think that and how you would educate for that, and you know, I'm not not the expert on that, but I think the thing that we're probably missing is getting much more uncomfortable with uncertainty, because a crisis in its essence is um, a surprise, um, or it's an uncertainty issue in terms of a risk that's developed. Um, the known stuff we can manage. We know things and human beings will make mistakes and issues will happen and all of those things that we can have some good systems and structures in place in. But where we need to sort of um, get much more comfortable is dealing with those issues of the grey. Um, So where things are not quite as black and white and getting comfortable dealing with it might be not your fault, but it is your problem. And I think we sort of spend too much time in our education system kind of focused on the black and white and getting to the answer instead of actually managing to the outcome. Um, And that takes much more shades of grey. Um, And so if we can do more with our management teams and people coming through, giving them different challenges where they have, are going to face some challenges and some things that will go wrong and allowing people to fail. I think, you know, we've we've sort of worked to get so our system so secure um, and so um, we just, just, 
you know, so perfect in so many ways that actually, you know, everyone's going, I want you to be innovative. I want you to try new things, but I want you to deliver on the business case and I want you to make sure that everything's going to be profitable in year one. And I don't want you to fail, you know, so don't get it wrong. Um, Well, you can't do all of those things. If we really want to drive productivity in this country and drive innovation and sort of deal with some of these really tricky issues like climate change and all those sorts of things, we're going to drop the ball occasionally. There's going to be some stuff that goes wrong. We're going to have the occasional crisis on the way. Some will be things that get thrown at us like COVID and some will be things that we make ourselves. Uh, And how we respond to those is how we're going to develop and how we're going to be able to get through them faster. Mm, That is so true. And I think you just touched on quite a few of that. But what do you think are the key challenges for directors in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I, the two, there's two things for me, um, and one is climate change. Um, so, boy, that's a tough one for all of us in terms of, you know, if, every not-for-profit, every corporate, how are they contributing and going to be ensuring that we're getting to um, a less warmer planet? So that's a huge issue in terms of how organisations and boards are challenged by that really tricky issue, which is a symptom of the other bigger issue that we've got is leading through uncertainty. So again, the days of the known for governance are gone if they were ever there. Um, The issues that they've got left are all the really difficult stuff like people and culture and innovation and choices and investment and climate change. So those issues are the ones that in the next five to ten years boards are going to be very, very challenged by. Um, And that is um, underlined by this huge shift we've seen in terms of social expectation, that social licence to operate. What we expect from business today in its broader sense um, has changed. It used to be as long as you did so legally, that was okay. And then it became legally and ethically and that was okay, but now it's I want you to be legal, I want you to be ethically based, and I want you to have purpose, and I want you to actually have a positive impact. It's not enough to no longer just have a negative, you know, like kind of neutral impact. You've now got to be, you know, carbon neutral is not enough. I want you to be carbon negative. Um, so that's a huge pressure point for organisations as they find their purpose um, and the social licence in terms of what we will accept as a community has shifted. That's such a good point. And I suppose innovation plays such a big part in that, doesn't it? And I, I hate to use this word, but a lot of companies have had to pivot over the last <laughs> yeah, eight pivot, or so yeah. months. There I go, I say that word. Um, but I, I guess what are some of the things that have really surprised you as boards have really taken that challenge with gusto? They've helped their company to pivot. They've really faced these challenges head on and they have innovated. What's been really surprising to you through this journey? Yeah, I, th- I think um, some have pivoted so much they've kind of pirouetted now, haven't they? <laughs> it's kind of got to that got to that point. Um, how quickly they adapted to the online, I think, actually. Um, boards shifted there pretty quickly. Quite interesting in terms of the international research, though, is that the New Zealand companies are saying, for example, that they won't be as reliant on online board meetings in comparison to our international colleagues. 
I think that's going to be a challenge for New Zealand moving forward. We've come out of COVID, if we're out of COVID, whatever that means. Um, you know, we've come through our COVID journey quite differently than some of our international colleagues. So their muscle memory is built up in different ways. The way that they've had to adapt and change, what is that going to mean as we integrate back in together? Um, that's going to be a significant challenge for us in terms of, I think, different operating styles. Uh, but we saw, saw a huge shift in terms of um, upskilling around cyber um, over that period, um, still a lot of high-profile cyber breach issues and ransomware underway even in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, but that's been a huge upskilling area. Um, and um, the thing that was quite surprising is how few companies needed to change their delegations for their innovation strategies. They had, again, they had those systems there. They had those boundaries. They just had to release them. Uh, so, you know, I think that's going to be incredibly important as we try and face some of these really tricky issues. If we're serious about trying to deal with climate change, innovation is going to be the only way, particularly for the primary sector. Um, so there's some great work happening there in terms of boards having to readjust. The other thing that became really clear in terms of um, the commitments and innovation that's going to have to change is our supply chains. I think we were, we, you know, I think that was one of the crisis areas as people knew their supply chains were important. But now they really deeply understand how important that is. And again, that well, I think we're going to see a shift away from how supply chains are managed. That's going to be an area for innovation. Where before we were trying to dry and you know sort of draw out as much cost. It was just in time management and don't hold any stock and get it off the balance sheet. Well, we found we got caught a bit short with that. So I think we're seeing quite a shift in the way um, companies are organising themselves, how they're innovating, right down to sort of even how they're holding stock. Mm, that's really fascinating. And on that point of supply chain management, and I found it quite interesting um, to hear that there's that difference between um, the digital reliance um, nationally here in New Zealand and internationally. Do you think that there will be more collaboration coming out of COVID? And I'm saying this was um, earmarks. Um Coming out of COVID, will there be more collaboration internationally between directors or is it really that focus inwards on, okay, what do we have internal in New Zealand? Let's make that work rather than looking out. Yeah, I, I think at the moment we're seeing a lot of in, a lot of inward um, because, you know, exporters are still in the export space, but they can't get to market. It's quite different. You can do today's work online, but can you do tomorrow's? And that's going to be an interesting thing in terms of how do we build those new relationships as people change. And so those directors who have been serving on international boards, um, they've, they've been doing some odd hours and it's been quite difficult. So how you you know build those new relationships. But it's going to be critical for us that we do um, build those international connections and cooperate again because otherwise we will get left behind. Uh, the world is going to be working in a different way. Uh, and uh, it would be very easy for us to pull the moat up here and say we're okay, we'll just leave it as it is. Um, but we are an export nation and we need to send our best and brightest ideas and opportunities and resources out to the world um, to showcase New Zealand. Um, I think we'll see more directors starting to sort of um, collaborate, find new ways of doing that. We've had the benefit of connecting via Zoom uh, the issue is how we then make that uh, an opportunity or we make that into uh, a business opportunity. Um, still some challenges on that front, I think, with, with borders being uh, positioned as they are. 
think collaboration, as you mentioned, is so important, isn't it? Especially as we start having an eye to the future and just being so aware that things can come at us without a without a hint of a warning. Um, I guess consolidation too is something that's been spoken about in the charitable space, not-for-profit boards. There is a lot of consolidation happening. Is this change in the dynamic of boards or...? Oh, we'd love to see more collab- uh, yeah, consolidation and collaboration there, absolutely. New Zealand's one of the easiest places in the world to start a business. It's also one of the easiest places in the world to start a charity, uh, which is a great thing because we're, and we're um, a nation of givers uh, and we're, um, you know, we're a nation of volunteers, which is fantastic. Huge reflection on us culturally, but what it does mean is that we have a very split not-for-profit market. You know, We know that there's over 115,000 chairs of not-for-profit in this country, over half a million not-for-profit directors. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. And they're incredibly diverse and doing all this um, amazing, great work, but they will all be holding an AGM and they will all have constitutions that need to be updated soon with changes to the Incorporated Societies Act and they're all doing charities register uh, reporting and they're all applying for the same grants. Uh, So, you know, it's one of the issues um, that uh, we really need to see more of is more collaboration uh, and more sort of charities working together. We've seen some great examples of some who are trying to um, deal with some of their federated models first. We have lots of those little federated models. Plunkett's dealt with theirs nationally. Ronald McDonald House have dealt with theirs. Um, so lots of great examples of charities who are getting their um, community together and making sure they've got one really strong, robust system driving those efficiencies so that they can focus on their purpose because your purpose of your not-for-profit is not to have management and systems and reporting. Your purpose is to help the community that um, that you've set up, the community that you're uh, there to look after. Um, good governance, uh, you can do that whether it's for five people or 500 people. There's lots of efficiencies in there and hopefully we'll see more of it. Mm, it's that red ocean, blue ocean thinking coming into play there. And I suppose with with all of that communication is is something that flows through. How vital, in your opinion, is it to have that communication internally and externally? Yeah, it's really critical. It's um, we'd love to see more communication skills on boards, actually. Um, so really interesting. We did um, some survey of the boards, and only fifty one percent of our boards told us that they had the right skills and capabilities that they need to lead for the future. Only half of them, which is scary stuff, right? So, you know, half the boards out there are saying we need a different breadth of skills. I mean, yes, you need to have your chartered accountant and there'll be some, you know, lawyers occasionally dotted around, but we need more marketers. We need more communications people. We need more HR people. Um, You know, we need more engineers, more scientists. So we need more board diversity um, in terms of the the skill set. But very clearly the, the communications is probably one of the, Kind of the biggest issues for for boards and management teams. How do you get your purpose out there? How do you tell your story about what it is you're doing? Um, and the annual report's not enough anymore. Uh, so that's a critically important way of doing it. But actually, investors want to know more about it. Your customers and consumers want to know, and even people who might not you know, buy your product will still have a view about that. They want to know what you're doing, why you're doing it. How do I trust you? How do I know you're a good neighbour? Um, you know, how do I know where, you know, your money's being invested if you're a not-for-profit? Um, and, you know, are you a good charity to, to be donating to? Are you making an impact? 
Uh, and those are, you know, skills that we desperately need to be able to communicate to the world because uh, just putting them all out on a balance sheet and saying there's the numbers uh, doesn't, doesn't really help tell the story. Mm. And um, just following on from that, what do you think are some of the main barriers for that lack of diversity in terms of skills on the board? Yeah, I think there's a combination of things, isn't there, that um, some of it's the way we recruit our board members, uh, some of it's self-selection, and people go, oh, no, I won't apply for that board role, um, or no, no, they wouldn't take someone like me. Uh, So, you know, there's huge communities who um, need to be asked. We need to make space for people to, to come in. We've been doing some work with um, some different industry groups trying to make sure that governance is visible in their in their communities and that they sort of go, actually, oh, yeah, maybe governance is for me. Maybe actually I can make a difference a difference there. So we need more visibility about what happens in a boardroom. Um, one of the areas we hear consistently from everybody, though, is I'm not confident on the finances. Uh, so that's an area that um, for particularly a lot of non-chartered accountants will self-select out and go on worried about the finance. We can get training and development over that. We're not asking them to do bank reconciliations. Um, yes, they've got obligations to do that, but actually, you know, they'll also have obligations over a broad range of issues on the board. Um, so, you know, those are skills that we can help people with. And, you know, we've got finance essentials courses and those sorts of things uh, that, you know, people can go through to get the support on that. Um, but we also need our boards to be do- making sure they're doing good board reviews, doing a good skills matrix and identifying where those gaps are. Um, and then actively going out and looking for candidates with that. We've had some great programs around things like our Mentoring for Diversity and also our Future Directors program. Future Directors is great. It's one where um, they get a like an intern director who comes and observes in the board for 12 to 18 months. Uh, and it's an amazing opportunity to be able to see in a boardroom and to watch what happens. And that board gets um, a skill set from someone who they might normally not have um, had in their boardroom. So we're seeing some really great diverse skills. Uh, coming through in those areas but you know our boards are looking for a range of really different things at the moment what's really hot cyber and climate boards are really looking for those kind of skills whereas you know if you'd said sort of cyber security or climate 20 years ago that would never have been seen as a governance pathway whereas now they're in really hot demand. What would you say to someone I think speaking about those barriers to entry to a board level what would be a natural jumping off point for someone if they've come through their leadership career and they're thinking about it they're listening to this what would be their next best step how would they enter into a governance or board role? Yeah, there's a couple of ways you can do that. So first is join the IOD. Of course, we can connect you with like-minded people. Um, but don't join us just to get a board role, right? So, you know, we're really clear with people that, um, you know, we uh, we know about vacancies, we can connect you in with them. But actually join us because you want to get better at the art and the craft of governance. And you'll find like-minded people and then opportunities will flow from that. So that's um, a good way to sort of connect in with people. Uh, and there's, you know, kind of recruitment processes and things, all those sorts of things that you would expect. But the best thing to do is actually start talking to people and share your interest. Find something you're passionate about um, in terms of not-for-profit. Lots of people start um, their careers in not-for-profit governance. You know, the chair of Air New Zealand started her um, governance career on the local kindy uh, in her area, and she's now the chair of Air New Zealand. Not everyone's going to have that same career pathway. Um, I started my governance career on the local Plunkett committee. You find things that you're passionate about and we're prepared to put some service back into. Not-for-profit governance is some of the hardest you'll probably do because um, often there's not great lines of governance and management split. 
you know, financially, um, it's hand to mouth. And then you're also not serving alongside uh, experienced directors a lot of the time. But it's a great place for people to find out and try governance on. Is it right for me? Is this something that I feel I can make a difference at um, and get some training and some development um, in that way? And start sharing that story that you're interested in governance because often people, um, I hear from people that they are interested in a particular candidate or somebody would be great for a board, but they thought they were too busy or they didn't think they were interested. Uh, and again, Kiwi thing, we don't like to sort of say, hey, actually, I'm looking, I've got some space in my portfolio for a couple of board roles. If you hear of anything coming up, I'm interested in this, but know what you can give to the board. Um, if you go out saying, I want board roles, well, you know, there's lots of boards out there. Why you? You need to say, I've got these skills. These are some things I feel I can really make a difference on. Is there a board that might need those? Um, and kind of share that share that story. Um, and then just making sure that when you are on those boards, you make room for really diverse people and make sure you sort of scoot over and bring one up and create space for people um, so that uh, there's diversity in that recruitment pool. Wonderful. Um, I think... I think that was just really valuable to have that conversation with you. Thank you, KP. Um, thank you for taking the time. If our listeners want to follow your journey and get connected with the IOD, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, the great old website, iod.org.nz. Um, there's lots of... Um, uh, services there, lots of information and guides there. You don't have to be a member to access it all, particularly a not-for-profit hub. Um, so, and we've got lots of resources there because our our role is to raise the quality of great governance in New Zealand for stronger businesses and stronger communities. Uh, so, there's lots of things there. Share them with people. Lots of um, support there for people to get better at governance uh, in their organisations. And you know, um, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'm very happy to um, support people along their governance journey and to share any sort of case studies and and hear how things are going because uh, it's, a, it's a great community and it's uh, also very everyone's very generous in their time in terms of connecting and giving back. Beautiful. We'll make sure to include those details in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, KP. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.